Hey, good morning. Hey, welcome everybody. Great to be in church with you today. I want to just say a special welcome to anyone joining us for the very first time. If a friend invited you or you're just checking us out for some reason, we really are honored to have you with us today. So a special welcome to you and everyone joining us online as well. Good morning and we miss you. We hope you're well. We hope you can be with us soon. Uh, we're we're uh, continuing a, a teaching series this morning, as you saw, called Made for This Moment. And what we're doing in this series is that it's just good periodically for a church to take time together to talk about uh, the specific uh, things that God has put in front of that congregation for the time and place in which he has placed them uh, and to ask themselves, you know, are we going to renew our commitment to this unique time and place in which we live? And that's what we're doing in this series. And today we're going to be talking about building communities of mercy in the midst of a world filled with brokenness. When I say that today, of course, I mean that we want to be known uh, as a community that's just brimming full of mercy uh, in all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of alienation, alienation from God and confusion and thinking and uh, hard-heartedness. Uh, but because of the time and the place in which we have been called to minister together, uh, I have in mind today particularly the impact of sexual sin and confusion. We want to be known uh, for building communities of mercy in the midst of sexual confusion and brokenness and sin. This was brought home to me in a really powerful way this year as I was preparing for the series that we did back in June. Uh, back in June, if you were here, we spent some time teaching about sex and gender and sexual identity and uh, the research for that series, and I think I shared this with you, the research for that series was some of the most heartbreaking I've ever done for any series I've been a part of. Uh, the amount of pain and confusion surrounding new sexual and gender identities, and you know, this especially for Gen Z and younger, uh, is quite heartbreaking. Um, even in the last few months, uh, this has come home to me in a new way as, as guys have approached me to talk about pornography. Things that they've been dealing with for decades as Christian men but didn't know where to go with it. What if the church found out about what I was doing? What, how would I be met? Would I be met with compassion and mercy or judgment? There's just something about sex that is so close to the very center of our being uh, that, that this is one of those places where uh, if the church doesn't learn to show mercy, it's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. Uh, we asserted back in June, history is not moving toward this sexually liberated utopia. That dream is a nightmare. And so we, you know, in the midst of where we live, we're going to hold up the teaching of God's word about these things because everything that God says about it is good. I mean, th these are the words of life. And so we're gonna continue to hold that up. But for now, uh, we need to learn to do that with both clarity and a tremendous amount of compassion. And for me, I think uh, this is a tremendous challenge because it's undeniable, okay? It's undeniable that the church and I'm speaking for myself now. Uh, the church has not always spoken to these issues with compassion 
or with mercy. Uh, People who've experienced the heartache of divorce or struggling with pornography or struggling with their gender identity, sexual identity and all that, the church has not always been, or it's not always felt like the safest place. So there's a great deal here to prayerfully consider. There's a great deal to repent of. But we are also not free to just stop talking about it either. Uh, There are a lot of people, uh, you know, who would hear the things we're going to talk about this morning and say this is a fool's errand. Moral and spiritual clarity on one hand and mercy and compassion on the other in these these areas simply don't go together. Uh, And I just reject that. I utterly reject that. We should reject that. This is exactly the time and place where both are needed. And we're given in the gospel the resources to actually be those people. I I feel like uh, this issue, the issue of sexuality in our culture right now, is going to be the greatest test for our gospel in our generation. Can the gospel that we preach at Faith Community Church create a people that are both morally and spiritually clear and brimming full of mercy? So today we're going to look at a a beautiful story together to talk about this, one of the best stories in the gospel of Luke chapter 7. Let me invite you to turn there with me, Luke chapter 7. That'll be on page 864 under a, a Bible in front of you. While you're finding that, just a reminder, last week we talked about Uh, In Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, we read about this grueling five, six, seven-month season of ministry where Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing the sick and casting out demons in all the cities and towns of Galilee. You remember last week, Matthew 9, 36, said that when Jesus looked out over the crowds, he was filled with compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Well, this story that we're going to read right now takes place during that five, six, seven, maybe eight-month window, and we're going to meet two of those sheep without a shepherd uh, right now. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, and this is what he says. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of that city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Incidentally, anytime Jesus says that to you, you you should buckle up, okay? (laughs) And Simon answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began, with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In my Bible, the editors have put this helpful heading over the reading. It says, a sinful woman forgiven. That's probably what yours say as well. But this really is about two sheep without a shepherd. You'll notice that Jesus turns to both Simon, verse 40, and to the woman, verse 44. And both of them, in some sense, are seeking Jesus. So let me just, let's just set the table or paint the picture here uh, and then talk about that. In verse 36, Simon is introduced as a Pharisee. And just in case you're new to the story of Scripture, Pharisees were a popular and well-respected religious sect, and they were looked up to for their spiritual zeal and their moral purity and their love for God's word. They were also always fighting with Jesus. Uh, Jesus' most, most scathing critiques are for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And actually, already, by chapter 7, there's a plot afoot in the Gospel of Luke to try to kill Jesus by the Pharisees. So it is significant that Simon has invited Jesus into his home for a meal. That's a clear social cue. He's reaching out to Jesus to invite him into relationship. Uh, Simon has, well, I should say, other than, you can correct me if I'm wrong, other than Nicodemus in John chapter 3, I can't think of another Pharisee that ever reaches out to Jesus this way. Uh, so he's to be commended for that. And even Nicodemus would only meet with Jesus at night. Here's a Pharisee inviting Jesus in broad daylight to a public gathering where Jesus is his honored guest. And this banquet, even though it was in Simon's home, because Jesus was a public figure, the door would have been left open to the public. So we should picture a, a table in the middle of a courtyard or a large room and uh, people free to come and go and stand around and just observe, observe and listen to what's going on. When, and when verse 36 says that they reclined at the table, it just means, you know, it's a, low, a real low table and everybody kind of laid on cushions and ate with one hand. Okay, you should try that sometimes, it's really fun. <laughs> well, then it says in verse 37, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in, in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And it's true, Luke does not tell us explicitly what this woman's sin was, but uh, people who know you know, Greek language inside and out, uh, all agree that this, this phrase, a woman of the city, 
It's an idiomatic phrase. An, Id an idiom is like, oh, it's raining cats and dogs out there. We all know what that means. A Chinese person learning the language is like, it's raining cats and dogs? Like, what does that even mean? Uh, so this is an idiomatic phrase, uh, and Luke is just being polite, but what it communicates is that this, this woman is most likely a prostitute. She's a woman of the city. Uh, this is someone who's lived well outside the boundaries of God's law for a long time and is coming in now, uh, it says, to pour ointment on Jesus' feet. She's brought this alabaster flask of ointment. Some of your translations might say a jar of perfume. They're both right. It's just this really strong-smelling ointment. And you have to keep in mind, in this climate, it's very dry and it's very hot. And people walked around in sandals all day, and their feet got very hard, very nasty, and sweaty and dirty. And so what she's come to do is really quite a beautiful thing. Uh, she's coming to, you know, soften and, and rub and take care of his feet. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing that she's come to do. But verse 38 says that as she drew near to do this, uh, she began to weep. That the, it doesn't come through quite as clearly in, in the translation we use here, but the sense is that she arrived to do this, and you can just imagine this, where she gets behind him and she's aware of where she is. And before she can do what she's come to do, she finds herself standing there. And she is overcome. And it says that she wet his feet with her tears. So you have to just imagine to, to get that done. At some point, she is kneeling down with her face and her cheeks pressed against Jesus' feet. And that's probably the first time he becomes aware of her as he feels something soft falling on his feet. And then it says that she let her hair down. So no, no woman would have gone out in public in this context with her hair down. She would have had to let her hair down and then wipe his feet with her. How, how close do you have to be to wipe... Wives, why don't you try this at home today? <laughs> how, how close do you have to be to wipe someone's feet with your hair? Um, so it's a beautiful story. I don't think I need to make the case today for why this story would be so important for a congregation that desires to be merciful in a context full of sexual confusion and brokenness. There really is something here for everybody today wherever you're at with this issue. Again, it's not just a, a story about the woman. There are two people here who've taken a risk to be in Jesus' presence. They're both seeking him in some way, but one of them leaves the story with more than she could have ever dreamed of, and we'll talk about that in a moment. The other one leaves the story with kind of a bop on the nose, you know, kind of a stinging rebuke. So it's not about one that's interested in another that's hostile. They both are coming, wanting Jesus in some way. But, you know, come as you are, okay, which we really, really, really teach here. Come as you are, we're seeing is not the same as come any way you wish. Come as you are, which we strongly endorse, is not the same as saying, just come any way you want to. And th this is a challenge in a context where, you know, the, the con 
Common sense is, you know, everyone's on a spiritual journey and we all need to kind of find our own way, but they all basically lead to the same place. I think Jesus would say, really? Luke wants us to sit up and ask, well, what is the difference here? Why does one get a smack on the nose and the other more than she could have ever dreamed of? What, what can people who want to build communities of mercy learn from this story? Uh, number one, we see one of the differences between these two people is the posture with which they approach Jesus. It's totally different. Simon's approach is an intellectual and detached approach. And the woman comes with her whole self just to love and honor him. Simon is there to study Jesus and evaluate him and decide if he will do what Simon wants him to do. She just comes with gratitude and love. You can hear Simon's evaluation in verse 39. He says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. So now we know what he's after. Simon wants to know what all the Pharisees want to know is, is this man a prophet or even perhaps something more? And his, his, you know, he's arrived at a place now where he's like, well, either this man doesn't know who's touching him and he's not a prophet, or he's a prophet and he's letting her touch him and therefore he's impure. I do want to say, this is not the same as having questions about Jesus. Okay, if you're here today and you're just trying to figure out what you believe about Jesus, this is new to you, or you're just sorting things out, please don't hear this as a rebuke. But do please consider uh, that you can approach those questions from two very different positions. Simon is in the seat of the judge here. He's the evaluator. His posture is, you have something to prove to me, I have questions for you, and if you answer them acceptably, I will give you the privilege of being my Messiah. He's never going to understand that way, and neither will you. Okay, if you're coming to the Lord Jesus from that kind of a position, there's something about him that is just always going to escape you. He is, Jesus is not our employee. Okay, He is, we saw last week, he is moved by gut-wrenching compassion when he sees the crowds, but we should not imagine Jesus desperate for our approval, okay? Simon comes as the evaluator and judge. The woman comes because she just wants to love and honor him. Jesus says, in verses 44 through 46, I'll paraphrase, but he says to Simon, you know, do you, do you see this woman? I came into your house, you didn't wash my feet. She's been weeping on my feet since she arrived. You didn't offer me uh, any kiss, but she's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head. She's anointed my feet with ointment. And you can imagine Simon saying to himself, is that what you want from me? You want me to hug you and kiss you and love you? Simon has come for a seminar He's come for a discussion. Is this, is this what Jesus wants from me? And Jesus is saying, yes. Yes, this is what, I, I want a passionate relationship of belonging and love with you. And I'm not going to, <laughs> I'm not your employee. I'm not here to just, and he does, but he does answer questions. 
but he's not just a question-answering machine. If what you want is an impersonal, detached religion where God is kind of a, a bug under a microscope, you are going to be confused. Another great challenge uh, for our context because, you know, we are spiritual and religious consumers. In, in the time and place in which we live, we're spiritual and religious consumers and we come to spirituality as evaluators. We sit in the seat of judgment like Simon. We know what we want. So everybody, we want peace. We want a sense of purpose. We want a, some sense of being loved by God and of belonging and things like that. What we do not want is this personal Jesus. What I mean by that is a is a, an authoritative spiritual king who has the right to say, you have come in the right way, and Simon, you have not. We hate that. We hate it. Uh, we hate the idea of a spiritual king where he's actually the one in the judge's seat, and he's actually the one doing all the evaluating in this story. And There's, there's almost nowhere, by the way, that that is more true right now than in sex and sexual identity and gender and just generally what we get to do with our own bodies, okay? My body, my choice is not just a slogan for the abortion movement. I mean, this is the American mantra. Our greatest value in life is that no one, not even the king of the universe, should presume to tell us what we're gonna do with our bodies and our desires. And if, if you come to Jesus the way the woman does, well, she loses all control. You know, she, Jesus could ask her for anything at this point. He, she's given over all her power and all of her control. So in our context, what happens is just homemade, self-created, self-directed spiritualities just abound. Spiritualities where we control the narrative of what's happening just abound. How many of us have said, I'm spiritual, but not religious? And if, friends, if I could just press you on that point, just very quickly, I think what we're saying is, I want all of the peace and purpose uh, and the goodness that spirituality brings, but I do not want a God who will contradict me. The thing, that, the thing that we want is to keep control. That's what Simon is doing here. And if we, have a spiritual, if we have a spirituality like Simon's where we stay in the driver's seat, we keep control, but what do you lose? You lose the tears. You lose the tears. In homemade, self-directed spirituality, does anyone ever have this kind of experience that's not drug-induced? I'm serious. Does anyone who's creating their own reality get to have this kind of encounter with a living God that's not drug-induced? For those who stay in Simon's seat, there is just something about Jesus that is not going to make sense, and we're going we're to say... You know, I grew up in church. It just didn't work for me. I couldn't stand the hypocrisy or people telling me how to live and I'm just doing my own thing now. Or we'll say, you know, as an adult, I, I gave Christianity a try. I read some, some Christian books. It just never connected with me and you're not gonna understand why. It's because you sit in the seat of Simon and that kind of spirituality leaves you in control 
but without tears, without the freedom that she experiences in letting her hair down. It's a, it's a spirituality without touching. Do, do you notice that's what really creeps Simon out in the story? She's touching him. If he knew who was touching him, he wouldn't have it. Simon wants a discussion, and she just wants him. Second difference is that the woman comes with no conditions. So this, this alabaster jar, the alabaster jars came in all shapes and sizes. This alabaster is a really soft, almost translucent stone, so it's easily carved into a lot of really beautiful shapes. We don't know what, what hers was like, but smaller jars would have hung around a woman's neck. They would have had a really long neck, so the scent could escape, but not the ointment. The ointment wouldn't be spilled out. Uh, for a woman, especially someone like this, it would have been a part of what made her attractive and beautiful. Now, larger jars, say a jar, you know, yay big, would be worth a year's wage. Okay, so picture a $54,000 jar of perfume. And, and these would be part of a woman's dowry that she would bring into her marriage. We don't know uh, what kind of, of, uh, of jar that she brought, but the point is large or small, what she's pouring out on Jesus' feet is almost certainly the most valuable thing in her world. This is all of her uh, control, all of her security, all of her capital. It's one of the things that made her desirable to men. And once it's out, you can never put it back in. So it's not just a beautiful thing that she's doing. She's literally pouring her life out on Jesus' feet. And Luke never really tells us how she gets here. Okay, but you have to imagine that Jesus has already gained a reputation as a friend of sinners. That's in the paragraph right before what we read. He's already gained a reputation as a friend of sinners and she, all, she certainly is one of those thousands and thousands of people who heard Jesus teach, who saw the things that Jesus was doing and she's putting all of this together in her mind and concluded that here at least is a prophet but maybe even more and he's merciful. He's, he's compassionate toward people like her. And her conclusion is that the only rational response here is to go with everything that I have and pour it out on his feet. There's this old hymn. It could have been written about this story. Maybe it was written about this story, but it says, take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at its feet, its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. That's what she's saying. I come with no conditions. I'm giving everything that I have. Whatever you ask, I'll do. Ask me anything. And it's, it's yours. I'll live a wholly different life. You just tell me what to do. Is there any spirituality in vogue today like that? Is there any other spirituality that asks that from its people? But if Jesus is who he claimed to be, this is the only rational way to come. Simon is approaching this conversation as Jesus' equal. And that's why he isn't responding the way that she does. And Jesus is just saying, you have not thought this through, Simon. 
You don't know who you're talking about or who you're talking to, and you should come back when you're serious. Take my will and make it thine. Take my heart, it is your own. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at your feet, its treasure store. And this is the invitation, okay? This is the invitation that we hold out to the world, anyone who would listen all the time. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever's been done to you, come. Come to Jesus. But don't come any way you want to. Bring your whole self or you're going to be mystified by him. You're going to be confused, but come. One more difference in the story. This is where churches like ours, okay, need to sit up and pay attention. Uh, in the story, one of these people is aware of her debt and the other is not. Look at the parable in verses 40 through 42. Simon and the woman come to Jesus very differently and the parable explains why that is. Jesus says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, say it. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? What is the point of this extremely short story? Why does Simon come in a detached, evaluating kind of way and the woman brings her whole self? Because Simon doesn't see himself as a debtor. Both are sheep without a shepherd. Simon doesn't know it. The point of the story is that it doesn't matter how far in debt you are. If you can't pay, you all wind up in the same place. And in the, in the ancient world, it's debtor's prison. You could owe a dollar or a thousand dollars. If you can't pay, you go to prison. And that's the point of the story. You know, in, the, in, the, in the spring here in Wisconsin, when the snow begins to melt, you've all seen this, uh, as the snow melts from Wisconsin's roadways, it's just full of animals that were hit all winter long and then buried in the snow. And some of them are completely emaciated. They've been there for four or five months. It, heads are gone and limbs are missing and their fur looks like it's just falling off their bodies. And some of them look like they're napping. Now, which of them is more dead is the point of the parable. Which is more dead? They're both dead. So Simon, clearly Simon is the 50 denarii debtor. He's pretty dead. She is the 500 denarii debtor. She's ugly dead, but they're both dead. And if you cannot pay your debt, someone's going to have to do it for you. That's the point of the parable. And I bet you can see why this would matter for a church that wants to build communities of mercy in the midst of a broken and hurting world. Part of our calling, and we cannot abdicate this calling, part of our calling is to speak, to speak the word of God because it gives life to anyone who would receive it. But we, if we do that, if we become a church that speaks and teaches the word of God with clarity and power, and we forget our debt, we are going to become a, a disdainful, judgmental, condescending people who does not see everyone as sheep without a shepherd, and we will find ourselves in the seat of Simon. And you do not want to do that. You get up on the nose. And the answer is so simple. Who's ready for not rocket science this morning? 
The answer is so simple. Just remember your debt. It's so significant that in this passage, Jesus talks about your sin as a debt. Debt is not something that just disappears into the air, okay? All, all of the news cycle to the contrary. You can't just take someone's loans and just, oh, they're gone now. Someone's paid. And in this case, we confess, it's the Lord Jesus that's taken our sin debt and paid it in full. And that should astound us. But the problem, when, when people are judgmental and condescending and disdainful, the root of the issue is we're just so in awe of what people do rather than in awe of what Christ has done for us. If Simon were in touch with his debt, and yes, it is smaller than the woman's, Jesus doesn't deny that. But if he were in touch with his debt, he would have loved Jesus the way that, verse 42, he'd have loved Jesus. And by implication, he would have welcomed this woman the way Jesus does. Now, so this issue, uh, for, for me, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm just blowing it out of proportion in my mind, but for me, this issue is so significant that we're actually going to have a couple of rules as a church, okay? Everybody ready for rules? I, I'm excited. Uh, first of all, we are going to teach, okay, about sex and gender and sexuality and marriage and divorce and pornography and cohabitation and sexual immorality and all of its forms because these are die-for issues, in case you're wondering. These are center circle die for issues because scripture says that they are, okay? And there's so much confusion and pain surrounding these things, we cannot just sit and, and, and watch as people are carried away by people who are talking about it. But we're gonna have two rules and I'm really serious about these. Number one, if you're gonna talk about this, you need to assume that you're talking with people who are either currently struggling with these things, have struggled with these things, or have loved ones, and I mean children, grandchildren, nieces and nephews who are struggling with these things. First of all, because it's basically true. Almost anyone you encounter at Faith Community at this point, this is not an academic exercise for them. And FCC, I, 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 I love you. You know I love you. Everybody, everybody knows, you know I love you. But I've been in meetings with y'all where someone begins to talk about LGBT people. And because of my position, I happen to know another person in the circle has a kid dealing with this. And the tone is just dripping with the stain. Because we assume and we're together, well, well, well this isn't, we assume this is an out there issue. And so we can talk about it anyway. No. The rule here from now on is when we talk about it, you need to assume that everyone in the circle is dealing with this personally. And number two, you are, we, 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 <laughs> we are not to speak until we have paused to remember our own debt. Everybody get the rule? You, we're, we're not going to build a culture here where everyone's afraid to talk about it because we might do it wrong and hurt feelings. Okay, that's just kind of a given. But we will not speak until we have paused to remember our debt. 
and let the gospel drive the tone and the posture with which we approach these things. With that in mind, I'm gonna invite the ushers to just get ready. If the ushers would just get ready to serve communion this morning, I just wanna make a, a couple more observations as we prepare our hearts to share communion today. A couple of other things that she gets from this interaction that Simon does not. Simon gets exactly what he wanted. He gets a seminar and that's it. She, on the other hand, leaves with this completely total new freedom. In pouring uh, out this perfume on Jesus' feet, she's saying, I have finally found the thing I've been looking for my whole life. Uh, Freud taught that spirituality or religion, Freud taught that religion is just repressed sexuality. Religion is repressed sexuality, and if we were just free to do whatever we wanted with our bodies, nobody would be religious anymore. Uh, and that's the modern narrative. You can see that in most of our movies, or if you've watched The Handmaid's Tale or something like that. That's, that's, that's the message. And I just want you to see in this story, God says exactly the opposite thing. God says in, you know, this story in Romans 7 and Ephesians 5 and elsewhere, that sexuality is just repressed spirituality. Don't you see that? Our, this, you know, this drive, this urges, these feelings, the, the need to be with someone, all these things, it's really just suppressed spirituality. And in pouring out her life, in pouring out this perfume on Jesus' feet, she's saying, this is, this is it, finally the thing I've been looking for my whole life. Could you say that today? The second, she leaves with this total new freedom. She lets her hair down in a public place and does all this in the open and displays this incredible courage. And this is the irony. In surrendering all of her power and control to Jesus, she finds she never has to surrender to anyone else ever again. We just live in a world where everyone is obsessed with what everybody thinks about them. And everybody it needs to be acknowledged in all these different ways. And look at the woman. She leaves with this total freedom from what people think of her. Totally free of other people's control. Because she's given it all to the, someone she trusts. And finally, this, and this is especially for the church. She's given an ability to love that she never had before. When Jesus says, verse 47, he says, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. We might, we might read that and, and, and think, oh, he's, Jesus is saying the reason I forgive her is because she has loved me so well, but that's not what he says. The next sentence uh, is, be, he who is forgiven loves little. He's saying she loves me because she has been forgiven. Our love for God and our love for others is directly proportionate to how big we think our debt is. The reason she loves is because she sees her debt clearly. And so to, to the degree, Faith Community Church, that we're not known for our mercy in coming years is directly proportionate to how large we think our debt actually is. It is not complicated. 
if we could see clearly what we have done and been released from, there would just not be a temptation to judge and malign and disdain, but mercy and compassion. Communion is a great opportunity to remember. So we're gonna do that right now. I'll have the ushers, ushers come on up and begin serving the bread. Just gonna give you a few instructions. As you hold the bread and wait to share this together, a few questions. Do you have a Simon religion that holds Jesus at arm's length, that puts him on trial, that is always evaluating him? Or do you have a, woman, do you have a, a religion like this woman that seeks him for his own sake? Are you characterized by a life of love for God and mercy toward others? Would the people around you say, this is a person that I can be known by and they will show mercy and compassion? Are you characterized by both great clarity and great compassion? Uh, do you think that faith community is? Would you pray as we're handling these elements right now, would you pray that God would do that at Faith Community Church? Is there anyone in your life that you're having trouble forgiving? Is there anyone that you're just so in awe of their sin and their shortcoming, much more so than you are overwhelmed by what God has done for you? And finally, are you controlled by what others think of you? Could you say in your heart, take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is your own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At your feet it's treasure store and take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Can you say that? Just take some time to pray on your own right now.